All right, welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today we have Craig Pickering. Welcome, Craig. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. Just for the audience uh, to get to know who you are, do you want to give a brief background about yourself? Yep. Yeah, so uh, my name is Craig. I used to be a professional athlete. So um, up until about 2012, I was a sprinter. So I went to the 2008 Olympics uh, for Great Britain. And then after that, I did bobsleigh for a couple of years and I was selected for the Winter Olympics in 2014 in the bobsleigh. Um, and then after that, I retired and I worked for a genetic testing company for almost five years as head of sports science. And then since then, I've been working for Athletics Australia um, as an athlete pathway manager. Nice. That's a, that's a wide, wide range of, I guess, career paths along there. And I know you do... a. I guess you do a monthly column there with Hammer Media. Um, yeah, you do it monthly. Yeah, I do it a bit. I do it a bit less frequently now, so probably quarterly. But um, yeah, I'm just kind of interested in sports science, and then I like to read articles to keep up to date with stuff. And I find that summarizing the the research in a column sort of forces me to do that. So yeah, I like doing it. Yeah, nice. So if anyone's uh, listening here, the Hammer Media guys, we've had. Um, Martin Bingus are on, Nick Garcia, we've also had Vern Gambetta on, all on the podcast. You can check those out too. They're, they're all involved on, on Hammer Media with a lot of great sports science information. But I wanted to actually dive into a lot of your research. And I guess a lot of your research revolves around caffeine. And I think it might be interesting to go into, maybe to start with the current caffeine recommendations, basically that are, I guess that are, what would you say? That are typical now regarding prescription for ergogenic effects. So what kind of caffeine recommendations would you be giving now? And how can someone, uh, I guess, go about doing those themselves? Yeah. So I guess with caffeine, uh, caffeine's probably the most well-studied ergogenic aid, so performance enhancing aid in sport. And it's well-established to be effective for pretty much everything. So if you take caffeine, your performance typically improves a fair bit. Um, I guess historically, the research used to sort of be using reasonably high doses, so maybe six to nine milligrams per for every kilo of body weight. So that's how caffeine's kind of standardized across people. Um, and then it kind of came down a little bit to three to six milligrams per kilo of body weight. So I'm I weigh hundred kilos, um, so six six milligrams per kilo of body weight would obviously be six hundred milligrams of caffeine, which is a lot. That would be ten espressos, which is, which is a large amount. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I guess three to six milligrams of caffeine, 60 minutes before you start exercise is kind of like the start point, um, for people who don't take high amounts of caffeine, less than that can work. Um, for people that are heavy users of caffeine, a bit more of that might be required, but yeah, three to six milligrams about an hour before is, is a typical start point. And then you'd probably want to just experiment a little bit around that. Does that change based on the type of exercise? Because I think a lot of a lot of those recommendations are generally towards strength, strength training. Or is yeah, it's different? yeah. It, there's a lot of variability around stuff. I mean, caffeine's performance enhancing effect is largest in endurance events that last kind of longer than longer than two or three minutes, but certainly over ten minutes. So that's where it has its biggest performance enhancing effect. But typically, the dose that you'd use there could be a bit lower. And you could space that out a bit more. Um, if you were doing, if you were doing a gym session, a sensible thing to do would just be to have some caffeine, sort of an hour to thirty minutes beforehand. Um, and again, you'd want to experiment 
based on your own individual biochemistry as to what the, the best time to be around it would be. Some people might need more than an hour beforehand. Um, some people would sort of like to have sort of doses split out. So a little bit before training, a little bit during training, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it varies on, it varies on loads of different things like, um, like how much caffeine you use away from training that'll have an impact on how much caffeine you should have before a training session. Um, like different people have different genetic, um, variations in a couple of genes and that'll influence how much caffeine they, they, they sort of tolerate as well. So it's quite changeable. Um, but yeah, which is why you start off at three to six, well, you probably start off at three milligrams per kilogram, six minutes before, and then you try a bit more, you try a bit less, you take it a bit closer before, a bit further away. And eventually you kind of figure out what works for you through trial and error really. Yeah. For me, I literally take a hundred milligrams <clears throat> and that's well, well under three milligrams. Cause if I take more, holy shit, when I get to that 200 milligram mark, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. So when, when I was an athlete, um, so my best athletics achievements were whilst I was at university. So I was, I was kind of studying and we had lectures on caffeine and it sort of, we were talking about three milligrams per kilo of body weight. So I tried that and I just, uh, I vomited basically. It was far too much caffeine for me. I couldn't, I couldn't train. I couldn't compete. Like I lost, I lost the ability to hear and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I was oh, pretty. Sensitive. You lost the ability to hear. Yeah, it was a lot of caffeine. So I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to caffeine. Um, anyway, but then since I've retired, I've, you know, I'm just a normal person now with kids that keep me awake. So I, like, I drink quite a lot of coffee, mm -hmm. and I'm not sensitive at all to it now. So I've built that habituation over time, and that'll happen to athletes as well. They start off being quite sensitive, and then over time, they'll just get more used to it. Yeah, I feel you on the kids part. That, uh, that's <laughs> definitely increased my caffeine consumption. A little. Yeah. But you mentioned you mentioned about habitual habitual caffeine intake affecting that. I think there was a paper recently that came out showing that a habitual caffeine intake does not influence the actual acute benefits of the caffeine. I don't know how true that is. It, so it, different papers will find have different findings on this. So yeah. it's probably a bit up in the air. So there's been. There's a couple of studies that sort of suggest that habitual caffeine use does degenerate the ergogenic effect you have over time. So you'd have to have more and more to get the same effect. There's other papers that say it has no effect at all. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it would just, again, it would be an individual thing. It, it's sort of maybe 20 years ago, the, the prevailing wisdom was that you would stop taking caffeine for maybe a week before a competition to become more sensitive to the effects mm. of caffeine. But again, that's been reasonably largely debunked at this point. Um, so like with habituation, what you want to not do is you don't want to get towards the point where you have to have absolutely loads of caffeine before training and competition to get an effect. Because if you need 600 milligrams of caffeine, it's quite hard to get that through liquid-based things. That would be like eight Red Bulls, for mm, example. Um, yeah, you, you could take it through tablets, um, but some people don't respond particularly well to, to that form of caffeine. So you probably in your day to in your daily life, if you were taking using caffeine through coffee and stuff, you'd probably want to stick to an upper limit of about three milligrams per kilo, which for most people would be three to four cups of coffee a day, and then a decent dose before you go to training as well. Probably you'd start to get into a bit of trouble if you were having six or seven coffees a day and then having caffeine pre pre training as well. You'd you'd eventually get to the point where you had to have loads of caffeine before competition or training that that would that then has knock-on effects afterwards, which if you're training late in the day, it's probably going to affect your sleep. Mm. You don't think it is. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. So that's, that's sort of the things just keep in mind, really. 
you mentioned about the caffeine type there with the pills and things. So what should people look for in that? Are there some, are there certain, I think caffeine anhydrous is the pure pill form. I think that tends to be potent. Yeah, it's, it's really complicated. Uh, so, and it's also <laughs> like, it's, it's quite prone to individual differences. So basically there's various ways you can get caffeine. Yeah, like I said, it's caffeine anhydrous, which would be tablets. That'll be the source, which is in most pre-workout powders as well. Right. Um, then you can also get caffeine in liquid form. So that would be coffee or energy drinks. Um, you can get caffeinated chewing gum. You could get caffeinated nasal sprays. Um, you can get those oh, energy yeah. gels that have got caffeine in. Um, there's all sorts of different types of caffeine that you can get. Um, they'll have different pharmacokinetics, so they'll have differences in how quickly you metabolize that. So if you have caffeine chewing gum, you probably get most of that caffeine absorbed in about 10 minutes. If you have caffeine in liquid form or tablet form, it's probably close to 45 minutes to an hour that you get to the, the peak aspect mm, there. Okay. But um, another problem is the amount of caffeine in a supplement or a gel or a liquid is quite highly variable. So there's some good research from Australia where they went to the same coffee shop and they bought the same coffee numerous times to test how much caffeine was in there. And it was it, it differed quite a lot. Then they went to different coffee shops, same sort of thing. They've done that with pre-workouts. They've done that with espresso coffee pods. So basically, you may think you're getting the same amount of caffeine from mm. your scoop of pre-workout, but it's actually probably changes quite a bit and then it changes between brands. And it's it's hard to quantify. So that's an additional sort of issue, which is people might think they're getting X amount of caffeine, but they're actually getting more or less than that based on normal variation. Gotcha. Does uh, natural caffeine sources differ from, say, caffeine anhydrous at all in terms of absorption and things? No, not really. So, um, like, so coffee, the caffeine in coffee is equally as performance enhancing as caffeine from caffeine anhydrous, for example. So like you can test the, the research will test that by giving people decaffeinated coffee and then caffeine anhydrous on top of it. And the effects are exactly the same. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause you see a few companies, I guess a few supplement companies and things like that moving towards, I guess, natural caffeine sources within their formulas and things like that. So yeah, yeah, just to check with that. And then, uh, you mentioned about the, the gene as well. So actually, I read one paper, it was a little while ago that CYP1A2 gene, I wrote that down because I always forget that gene. <laughs> and uh, and they were showing how, I guess, people, I can't remember if you have it or you don't have the gene, but either way, the non-responders are the ones that essentially see reductions in time trial performance. Responders see improvements in time trial performance with caffeine. But I think it was, is it a review that you were on showing uh, inconclusive evidence on that because it's kind of research both ways with it? Yeah, so... CYP1A2, that's a gene which creates an enzyme called cytochrome P450. And that's the enzyme which metabolizes pretty much all the caffeine that you you take in. And so people have different versions of that gene. So they can be called fast metabolizers. So they produce more of that enzyme, which means they metabolize caffeine quicker. Or they can be intermediate metabolizers or slow metabolizers. And the research tends to lean towards slightly showing that people that are fast metabolizers of caffeine they see greater performance enhancing effects if they take caffeine mm. before training competition and people that are slow metabolizers either see no improvement or in some cases actually get get a bit worse when they take caffeine so they would be non-responders to caffeine um it's early days in that research i think and okay. my personal belief is if you're a slow metabolizer i don't actually think that caffeine would make you worse i think you would have to take caffeine further away from the competition or training bouts. So instead of 60 minutes, that could be 90 minutes, for example, or, or two okay. hours before. 
that's probably what would have to happen. And nobody really knows why this would, why this gene has this this impact. But one of the one of the sort of hypotheses is that it's actually not caffeine which is performance enhancing; it's the metabolites of caffeine which are performance enhancing. And so, if you metabolize caffeine quicker, get those metabolites in your bloodstream quicker, and that's what improves your performance. Um, so yeah, that's one gene that has that has a, an effect. Um, another one which has been reasonably well studied is called um, DORA2A, which is an adenosine receptor. So people have different versions of that, which mean they're a bit more sensitive to caffeine or not. And then there's a couple of other genes which kind of have very little evidence to support to support them. Mm. So yeah, CYP102 and DORA2A, they're the, they're the main two at present. Aren't there companies now starting to try to come out with the caffeine metabolite so you don't have to metabolize the caffeine? If the, I haven't seen that, but um, I don't pay I'm much sure attention to it these days, so it could yeah. be true. Potentially, yeah. I'm sure I heard it on, on some fitness podcast the other day. That would be interesting. But how would someone know if they had, I guess, or if they were a slow responder or a slow metabolizer of caffeine without getting gene tested? So people who are slow metabolizers, anecdotally, they would be more likely to be the type of people that if they have caffeine late in the day, it would harm their sleep a lot more. So they'd, they'd notice that. So I'm I'm an intermediate metabolizer of caffeine. And until until I was until I had kids and I was so tired, I can just sleep anytime, anywhere. Um, <laughs> if I had caffeine kind of after 3 p.m., it would keep me awake at night. Whereas you, you, I'm sure you've met people, maybe yourself, like people, some people can have coffee after dinner, for example, and sleep sleep fine. They're probably more likely to be Yeah, that's not me. Coffee. Yeah, because that's <laughs> not me either, yeah. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. I think that might be my wife, actually. She can have caffeine <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost any time. She loves it. But I guess... The other thing is, is best practices around caffeine or caffeine periodization. How should someone look to use this as a combat athlete or, or any athlete really throughout the year? Is it just taking that same dose before I don't know, every session that you do every week and it's just that's just what you do year round? Or is there some kind of pullback and things like that throughout the year? Yeah, so there's not there's not loads of research into this type of thing, but what I would be doing is I would – I would have a dose that I know that I can take before a competition bout that I know I can tolerate really well. So I'll have, I'll have experimented with that trial and error over a period of time, competitions to know, okay, this is the amount that works for me. And this is how I have to take it. So in my um, track and field career, I figured out that what worked for me was uh, two cans of Red Bull and then two caffeinated energy gels. So that would end up being about 240 milligrams of caffeine, which was just about three milligrams per kilo of body weight um, when I was in as a, when I was a sprinter and I would take that over a split period of time. So I'd take that 90 minutes before, uh, an hour and 15 minutes before, an hour before and 45 minutes before. So I found a split dose worked for me very nicely. Um, through try and error, I figured out that like caffeine tablets didn't work for me or it was too, too concentrated and too high dose. So that's what I figured out. Then what I would do is I would try and stay below that amount. Um, for, well, in the days around the competition, I'd probably try and reduce my caffeine a little bit just so that on the day I was okay. a bit more sensitive, even though the research doesn't support that that's what you need to do. Yeah. It just sort of, that would be the kind of thing that I would be doing just to, just to make sure that when I was taking caffeine before the competition, I was, I was ready for it and kind of had nothing competing with it. And then I guess just during the training year, if I know three milligrams per kilo is probably what I need for most of my competition bouts, I would probably try and have three milligrams per kilo for my big training session. So maybe one training yeah. session a week. And then the rest of the time I'd just have a normal 
kind of habitual thing. So if I was training first thing in the morning, I'd probably have two or three coffees before training and then maybe a coffee in the afternoon just to keep me going. If I was training in the evening and I wasn't particularly sensitive to caffeine, then I'd, I'd maybe again think about two coffees beforehand. But I probably would be um, a bit less focused on on outside of competition. I'd probably a bit, be a bit less focused on getting high doses of caffeine, of caffeine in for training. I'd probably just want a normal sort of sensible amount just through daily, daily listings. That's what I would be, be doing. But if people don't want to drink coffee, which is which is fine, then pre workout, yeah. So pre workout would be would be fine. Uh, caffeine tablets would be fine. Just a- any kind of dose of caffeine would be fine, so long as you were kind of keeping it reasonably low, so you didn't have to sort of step it up a lot as you got to competition. Before getting back to the podcast, I want to let you know there's a link down in the description for the Sweet Arts of Fighting Underground Community. You can get all the help you need for your combat sports training. You get every single Sweet Arts of Fighting training program, online course. And you get access to a range of coaches within the private Discord community. So go check that out and back to the podcast. Do you find that <clears throat> some people or athletes maybe don't or shouldn't uh, use caffeine around competition just because they're already so hyped and jacked up that caffeine can put them over? Yeah, I think so. I think that's something that um, we've got to keep in mind a little bit. So I guess some people would be fine with caffeine in a normal competition, but then if they were competing at like the World Championships or Olympic Games, then high doses of caffeine, the, the same amount of caffeine might actually drive them to more anxious state. And again, that's something you can only really figure out through trial and error, really. So like I think it's the thing I'll keep coming back to, which is we know what the general guidelines are for caffeine intake, which is the three to six milligrams per kilo body weight six minutes before. But then you've just got to sort of figure things out around that. And I think that's probably like when I was when I was involved in in caffeine research. That's that's pretty much the point I got to in terms of some of the papers I was writing. I was kind of like the message was that we know caffeine works, so we don't need to do more studies which show that caffeine works. Actually, what we need to do now is figure out some of the context around how we can use caffeine. So what what's the differences between men and women? Should they take the caffeine to the same amount? Mm. What's the differences between genotypes, for example? Um, there's not much research on what happens if you've got two competitive bouts in close succession. For example, if you're a fighter, if you've got one fight and then three hours later you've got a second fight, do you take the same amount of caffeine for both of those? Like how do you sort of stagger that out? And there's mm. not really much research around that. So it kind of has to be be driven by trial and error, unfortunately. It's funny you mentioned <clears throat> about the competition as well. I remember I was competing at weightlifting nationals oh, many years ago and I had a Red Bull, something like 80 milligrams of caffeine, but I got hyped before that. And I had that just before, during my snatches, crushed the snatches, but then just like absolutely drained come the 10 minute break before the cleaning jerks. And I lost my legs, jelly legs. Could, I was just like absolutely hit the wall from that caffeine and i don't usually i don't usually use caffeine that much with training like at that time i would wouldn't even train with caffeine maybe like 40 50 milligrams on a heavy day and that thing that just absolutely bottomed me out (laughs) to another level like and i was like okay i gotta not do that next time and maybe have that in the break or something for the second part of it but yeah that's definitely trial and error yeah and that's exactly the type of thing you figure out so like when i was an athlete i guess i would take caffeine for 100 meter races but at the major championships you have heats of the 100 meters on day one then you've got semi-finals and mm. finals of the 100 meters on day two and i would have to take so much caffeine for a heat because i wasn't good enough to get through without it that i'd only get two hours of sleep um after those heats before the semi-finals the next day and again that's that's not ideal from a preparation standpoint yeah when would you do you typically recommend someone 
cut their caffeine intake for the day just because of sleep at night. Obviously, you mentioned it could be dependent on genes and stuff like that, but are there general recommendations? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the general recommendations that most people say is sort of don't have caffeine in the afternoon. But for most people that are reasonably tired, you probably would have to have caffeine in the afternoon, especially if you've got training um, later on. Um, I think from a competitive standpoint, I got to the point where it was worthwhile for me to have the caffeine for evening competitions to suit my performance. And I would just have to accept that I wasn't going to recover particularly well after that. I mean, there's there's some pretty good research from like um, rugby competitions, which shows that if you have caffeine mm. before an evening game, like you basically get no sleep. Um, and that obviously has a knock-on effect for recovery. If you've got a game every week and you miss a night of sleep every week, that's not going to be great. But it's just sometimes it's the price you've got to pay for that performance. Yeah, I remember we, we had a lot of players, yeah, who would get their pre-workouts out and caffeine and stuff. But I mean, a lot of time you're traveling after that too, which is even worse. Yeah, it's not ideal. <laughs> yeah, not, not ideal at all. Uh, actually, I came across, I was actually looking up a lot, a lot of your research as well previously and i came across something that i had no idea about and that was taste as an ergogenic effect and i was like this cannot be for real so you can literally <laughs> have something that tastes good and you can potentially improve performance without any kind of stimulants yeah a little bit so i guess the a bit of history around this would be um there's two things there's some research which shows that if you put a put a carbohydrate based drink in your mouth swirl it around your mouth and spit it out you still get some performance impact not quite the same as when you swallow it but but similar uh and similarly um like menthol so the mint flavored stuff if you have high concentrations of that in your mouth and you're exercising in the heat that actually makes you feel cooler and so you perform a little bit better so there's some evidence that kind of how you taste things may have an impact on your performance so yeah one of the papers i looked at was um there's there's a couple of papers which show that if you have a really bitter tasting compound and you put that in your mouth, that will improve your repeated sprint ability. So what they used in this study was quinine, which is what's in tonic water, which is obviously quite bitter, but a very concentrated solution of that. They basically put it in the mouth, rinsed it around, spread it out, and then some of them drank it. And um, even when you just put it in your mouth, it improves your performance a little bit. So that's a bit of tasting. Now, caffeine is a bit is also a bitter tasting. So there is the potential that when your body recognizes that you've got you've got coffee in your mouth or something that contains caffeine, that the taste of in and of itself might improve may improve your performance. But there's there's not loads of research on that. It's reasonably mm. emerging. But also, I guess linked to that is there's really really good evidence that a, a fair portion of caffeine's performance enhancing effects are. Um, placebo or, or expectancy in nature so they're not actually true physiological outcomes it's if you think caffeine improves your performance and you think you've taken caffeine your performance improves anyway so some really clever studies that show this which is they get a group of people they say to them do you think caffeine improves your performance they say yes they give them what they call a caffeine tablet they make them do an extra exercise their performance is better but it's just a placebo but if people yeah. believe they've taken caffeine and they think it improves their performance, they actually see a performance improvement. So there's a little bit of recognition of if you're used to the taste of coffee and you know that it contains caffeine, then when you taste coffee, mm. you think you've got caffeine, so you're going you're gonna to perform a little bit better anyway. So, so that will play into that as well. But it's a reasonably new piece of or new area of research. But I think yeah, it's something which will expand a bit more because there's, there's some evidence that like hot chili peppers will improve your performance as well, and that, that'll be through 
do taste. So, so it's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is really interesting. And uh, I guess you could put down the performance thing too. Like if you wake up and you're tired and you have coffee and you feel more awake, then that just associating that taste or that drink with that, right, over time would would kind of yeah. be part of that profile. But in addition to that is most people are so habituated and reliant on caffeine that when we wake up, we're just in a caffeine-deprived state. So when we have coffee, it just gets <laughs> back, back to the normal level. So like, I don't know if you've ever tried cutting out caffeine from your diet, but for the first two or three days, you'll you'll have headaches, you'll feel like crap. And that's basically most people when they wake up until they have coffee, which just gets them back to normal. So there's a little bit of like, um, I guess, reliance on, on caffeine in a lot of people. It sounds like you're speaking from experience there. I definitely am speaking from experience. <laughs> you mentioned about, about the, the caffeine between, I guess, if say you have a tournament and you're fighting and then you fight three hours later, there's not much research on there. Do you have any general recommendations or experience in what you would typically do in that situation? Yeah, so there's no... There is, there's no research on this. Um, or certainly there wasn't when I was kind of paying attention to it a couple of years ago. So what I figured out was I would take, so if we had semifinals and finals quite close together, I would take a large, my normal caffeine dose before the semifinal. And then I'd take a, a, a top-up dose between the semifinal and final. Usually there's about an hour between the semifinal and the final. And that top-up dose, if I was taking say 240 milligrams of caffeine before the, the semifinal, that top-up dose would be less than half of that. So somewhere between 50 to 100 milligrams per kilo of, of, of sorry, milligrams of total caffeine. So maybe like one Red Bull or a Red Bull and a carbohydrate caffeine gel or something like that. I think for even more repeated bouts than that, like if you've got three to four to five fights in a day, for example, there's a, like a, I don't know what to do. It would have to be try and error sort of thing. Again, I like it. It seems logical to me to have a large initial dose and then smaller top-up doses just to keep yourself at that level. But obviously, the amount of top-up that you require will differ between people. Like it'll obviously have an impact if you're a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer, how much you need to have. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of thing people could figure out over time. But yeah, that's probably what I'd be doing is I would have my large caffeine dose first, and then have smaller doses um, just to get myself just to keep the caffeine levels topped up, basically. Nice. And then there are other ingredients as well that seem to work well with caffeine, like L-theanine to help take away jitters and things like that. Do you ever recommend, I guess, taking those two together? Is that something that you've played around with? Um, I definitely, not with L-theanine. Uh, there was, when I was an athlete, we, there was some supplements that had other kind of neurotransmitter stuff within there. So, I mean, taurine is commonly found mm. in caffeine yeah. training drinks. Um, in fact, it's the main ingredient in Red Bull, I think. Um Taurine of itself is reasonably well studied and has been shown to be be reasonably ergogenic. There's like there's some very there's a couple of studies which show that like I think taurine increases the sensitivity of the muscles to calcium and one of the ways that um caffeine can improve your performance is that it causes an increase of calcium into the muscle, which makes you be able to contract your muscles a bit quicker. So there's some theoretical evidence that like taking those two together would work. Um there's there is evidence that energy drinks improve your performance um, and obviously energy drinks have loads of different compounds in there um, but yeah like I said I never use L-theanine but other things I use would have been um, uh, I can't remember the exact name it's something called like alpha GPC or something like that which is yeah. a neurotransmitter based thing um, and there was a couple of, of herbs as well I think one was called huberine or something like that which which 
I've got no idea if that. I thought they had an effect, and that was the main thing. Um, but there's not there's not loads loads of research around them. Yeah, the the paper I read on taurine, it was like the increasing taurine dose reduced the need for the amount of caffeine while improving essentially improving performance. Like a, I wouldn't say a linear relationship, but yeah, as taurine dose increased, uh, so did performance. So yeah, that's, yeah, there you go. But I think taurine is also used. I think I was talking to someone as. A, part of a sleep supplement as well so it's like has some calming effect i don't know how that works right, yeah, yeah no i don't know yeah <laughs> it's it's all over the place but you also uh done some research on <clears throat> exercise non-responders as well i think this is an interesting topic because people i don't know if anyone actually classes themselves as a non-responder but there might be <laughs> it might be the exercise do you want to maybe dive into a little bit of that what what makes a non-responder or a non-responder in quotes uh to exercise yeah so like 30 years ago there was a good good bit of research done in the u.s uh, called the heritage study which basically got like a loads of people they did some vo2 max tests they did they did a training program and they did some more vo2 max tests and some people got loads better some people got a little bit better and some people got a bit worse and then over time that kind of led to the concept of people that were sort of super responders to exercise normal people and then people that were kind of non-responders to exercise and then if you dive a little bit deeper into some of the research you'll see that some people when they do like an exercise training program they'll see their things like blood cholesterol get worse their heart rate response will get worse they actually get less healthy if they do exercise which is paradoxical um and so that led to sort of a, a belief for a short period of time that exercise might be bad some people um i think when you when you come down to this there's been some some really good work from some researchers in northumbria university which basically kind of it looks at the, the statistics behind non-responders and a lot of it is just normal biological variation so for example if you didn't went to the bench press today and if you went to do a bench press tomorrow you probably wouldn't lift exactly the same amount of weight mm. so let's just say you went and i don't know my bench press PB is 160 kilos. So let's just say I went to bench in today, bench press 160 kilos. I do a training program and then two weeks later I bench press and I've had a bad night's sleep. I've had an argument with my wife. I'm in a bad mood in the gym and I can only bench press 155 kilos. Have I actually got any weaker? Probably not. It's just normal variation. So that would have an impact on on kind of whether people are are non-responders or not. And then I think as you kind of, again, dig a bit deeper, it's people that are non-responders if you just look at one variable you'll see some people that don't get any improvement in that and that could be what's called false variation which is that some sort of like the statistical thing or the normal variation um in some cases it might be real but if you test for two or three variables you'll find that rarely is one person showing no response in these three variables and if you test for more like five six or seven then actually everybody improves on something it Mm. just depends what you actually test for so it's probably not true to say that nobody it's, a, it's not true to say that some people show no improvements from exercise they just might be showing might not be showing improvements in the thing that they're testing for yeah it also comes also comes down to the like the training program right like some people might just need more volume or more intensity yeah that's one of the ways to get rid of um exercise non-response is just increase the volume or increase the intensity so that, yeah a <laughs> really good study. yeah from 2017 i think it was where they basically did did this thing. They figured out these people non-responders. Then they just gave them more training to do, and 
they were no they were not non-respondents anymore they started to respond so yeah it's just i think probably a better word would be sensitivity so some people are highly sensitive to improvements some people need a lot more work do you think that that's a trait of an elite athlete i talked to a couple of people about about that before like i i think that the top of the top elite athletes are just able to adapt so damn fast to training stimulus and to soak up the learning and basically learn so fast compared to everyone else that that's what sets them apart from a lot of their, I guess, athlete counterparts. Yeah, I think that, well, I definitely think it would be the case. Like, I think an important thing, which you can't test for at present, but like talent ID, for example, a lot of talent ID is focused on saying, okay, this person is fast when they're 15. Therefore, we think they'll be fast when they're 25. And <laughs> so let's, let's talent ID them. Whereas really, I guess what you need to think about is how much can this person improve? Um, again, there's no way to test for that at present, but if you get to a point where you could do that, then that would be really useful from a talent ID perspective. Yeah. I mean, in soccer, I'm pretty sure they're signing them as young as five or six years old. Yeah. No, exactly. exactly yeah. I mean, and the research, like the talent ID is the area that I work in now. Like the research is, is pretty clear that you, People that are good between the ages of 12 and 16 are generally not the people that are good between the ages of 20 and 24. So the, the earlier you're selecting people, the worse the worse you are at making those predictions. So what are you looking for then in a, when you're doing your talent ID? And it might be interesting for people listening, maybe you have I don't know, teenagers in the, in the sport or, or know someone or, or that age. What, what are you looking for through those ages as talent ID? So I probably wouldn't be talent ID them. So I, I would say that we, <laughs> we will... I try not to talent, I, talent select people until they're kind of 17 or 18 um, because I think at that point you, you get a better idea. I think if you want to be a talented athlete and you've got, you're working with teenagers, like the evidence would suggest that, that you probably need to be exposing them to different sports so they build up like a decent movement library. Um, and I think the evidence is, is really strong around sort of psychological skills and being able to develop those in, in people. I think that's useful for life. But there's a lot of psychological skills that you could develop in athletes, which will actually make a big difference for them um, much further down the line. So I think if you're working with early teenagers, very general sort of training programs are useful. And then, yeah, focus on, on psychological development would be really important. What, what kind of psychological skills would you be referring to there? Oh, like it's loads of things, but I guess things would be persistence. So like when it's hard, do you keep going? And that's obviously a useful skill. Um, like resilience would be good. Some things around motivation. So like, um, ensuring that they're motivated to do exercise or sport for the for intrinsic reasons as opposed to sort of like extrinsic stuff. Like just just stuff that you see in elite athletes, how does that kind of filter down to the mm. to the lower level? So like self-regulation, for example. So um, you don't want to have teenagers that fly off the handle. They need to be able to manage their emotions, um, which obviously that, that plays over then when you're 20, 21, 22 and you're at the Olympics, you can manage that anxiety much better so it's psychological skills like that i think if people are are interested in that kind of thing then dave collins is probably the the researcher he's probably most well established in that area so just if you pulled up some of his papers on um i think it's called, called some psychological characteristics of developing excellence pcdes if you looked at those he would there'd be a lot of research around that which would be useful interesting interesting yeah that, hopefully that that leads people down a rabbit hole there and they can they can look into that too but I think that's all the questions I have for you, Craig. Where, where can people find you and follow you and see what you're up to? Um, I'm not particularly active on social media anymore, <laughs> but uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my user handle is at Craig100M, so 100 meters. 
Um, and if people want to shoot me a, a message on there, I'll, that's, I'll respond through that. Um, otherwise, if they go to ResearchGate, they can see all my papers. Um, and if they know where to look on ResearchGate, they'll be able to find my email address as well. And if people want to contact me, <laughs> they can. there's a small barrier. If you can find my email address and you email me, I'm more than happy to answer any questions that people have got. No, perfect. I'll link all those up in the description too. But thanks for coming on. I know it's a little late for you, but you're probably still awake from your from your caffeine doses throughout the day. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, cheers for coming on.